Okay, well, this is uh, part 11 of our ongoing study of why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. And I hope you had a chance to listen or, or watch last week's uh, presentation. I did it from the road, and it was on uh, more examples of apostasy. We talked especially last week about how the church is welcoming and embracing sin uh, like never before. And so it was a, it was a pretty heavy uh, presentation, but I hope... Uh, if you haven't watched it, I hope you'll take the time to go back and watch it and spread it around. People need to understand this is one more sign of the times. But tonight, I want to focus, as promised, on Romans 13, uh, Christians and the government. And this is going to be a heavy topic tonight, too. In fact, I spent a lot of time today just, you know, adding more to it, and I, I'm hoping we can get through it all and still have time for questions at the end, but I found my blood pressure going up higher and higher as I continued to study this whole uh, topic uh, of what we're going to look at tonight. So I thought before we introduce it and get into it, I'd, I'd start on a lighter note. Uh, you know, Sunday, uh, if you were here for our Resurrection Sunday service, I, I got kind of soft on cats, and, uh, and, and I just haven't felt right since then. It's just not my nature, you know. So I thought, uh, I came across this article and I thought I would share it tonight. Dog saves owner's life after cat starts fire. So there you go. That's more like it. That's my kind of, my kind of uh, article. Uh, so we have been talking about how the stage is being set. Uh, and, uh, and we started out by looking at some key uh, prophetic, clearly directly prophetic uh, setting of the stage that's going on. Things like... Israel becoming a nation state once again, uh, the geopolitical events over in Russia and Ukraine setting the stage for Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, other, uh, you know, things like the rise of the Antichrist and power, the power system that's out there, the depopulation movement, uh, you know, increasing deception, how much easier it is to be deceived now than ever before, and of course the one world government. And then we looked at how the stage is being set geologically and atmospherically, we looked at how the very earth itself is trembling and, uh, you know, labor pains, the Bible calls it. And we see an increase in uh, volcanoes and earthquakes and natural disasters. And uh, then, of course, we talked about a lot about geoengineering and the stuff that uh, the Luciferians are doing uh, for a variety of uh, motives uh, in the sky itself. And then we spent a, a week talking about uh, economically how the stage is being set, and we talked about how they, the Luciferians are desperately wanting to bring down America. They've been talking about that openly uh, for over 100 years now. And one of the tools in their arsenal to do that is an economic collapse. I don't think it's going to be the only thing that uh, leads to the demise of America, but I think it's going to be a key part of it. And the only question in my mind is, does that happen before or after the rapture? Because if the, you know, the Lord could come back tonight... Um, and in which case we wouldn't be here when the economy collapses. But uh, if the Lord's coming is delayed, and by that I mean in his sovereignty, nothing's going to cause him to be delayed. He's going to come back precisely at the right time, like we talked about Sunday. If you weren't here Sunday, or if you don't uh, go to Plum Creek Chapel, I encourage you to check out my uh, message on Sunday called When the Time is Right. And we talked about the, the timing aspect of, of things. Uh, but that economic collapse is clearly uh, coming. And then we've spent the last few weeks talking about how the stage is being set ecclesiastically through the apostasy of the church. And uh, just again to lay the biblical foundation for apostasy, the Bible is quite clear 
that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about the increased role that the demonic spirits, evil spirits, spirits from the dark side, will have in the final seven years leading up uh, to uh, the battle with Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. And even though we will be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year period, uh, it's still helpful for us to understand and see how all things kind of culminate with the climactic return of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. And it's also helpful to know for those left behind. Uh, and as I speak and we put out uh, messages and podcasts and things, there's no telling who might be listening. And I have no doubt that uh, there are unbelievers listening. And uh, this may be something that they look back upon if, in fact, the rapture happens and they're left behind. Um, but, you know, you, as I think about how in Revelation 16, which is in the lead up to uh, the, you know, the final battle, it's uh, the bold judgments, those final judgments that occur right at the very end of the tribulation, the last 72 hours or so. This is in the context of that sixth bowl judgment where three unclean spirits like frogs come out and we're told they're the spirits of demons but you know satan uh his army is uh, is fixed in the sense that angels do not procreate so they're the same number of angels today as there have been since the day they were created two-thirds of them are unfallen one-third of them are fallen uh, so satan has to do something to increase the size of his army if he's going to be ready for this final battle and I think he's doing that in several ways. Uh, and I hope I'm not opening a can of worms here, but one of which is through uh, the Nephilim and through the, uh, the cohabiting uh, of fallen angels with women that we read about in Genesis 6. And Genesis 6, 4 says those are still, they were still here after the flood. Uh, it says what it says. We, we have to take the Bible at its word. I believe it's because as hybrid beings, these Nephilim were able to shapeshift into a immaterial form and rise above the floodwaters, thereby surviving the flood. There's no question that the Nephilim are still around. And so I believe that we're seeing a continued propagation of Nephilim, because even though angels can't procreate, the hybrids that are the result of that unholy alliance that Jude and Second Peter talk about, they can procreate. So we're seeing an increasing in his army that way. But I think another way we're seeing it is through demonic influence and indwelling uh, and possession of unbelievers who then become sort of super soldiers in the devil's army. Uh, so uh, meanwhile, God's army, uh, those angels don't increase in number either, but those of us who by grace through faith are saved, we become part of the family of God, or to put it another way, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, we become part of the army of God. We're part of that spiritual battle. So um, Satan cannot gain adherence in you know, humans, but he can certainly lose them. Uh, once a person by faith is saved and born again, they are a child of God. Their spiritual DNA is fixed for life. They can never not have eternal life. They can never go back to not being a child of God. Um, you know, that's the doctrine of eternal security. Um, you know, we're kept by the power of God, Peter tells us. Uh, but those that are lost and thereby are, according to the scriptures, children of wrath as opposed to being children of God, they can, in fact, you know, be saved and therefore Satan loses those... Uh, those soldiers. So the battle is heating up, and you know, as we get closer to that final seven-year period, we're going to see, as we just read, an increase in these demonic-type activities. In chapter four, Paul goes on to say, 
Uh, the time will come when they, people in the church, will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside uh, to fables. He says, in the last days, perilous times will come. So then we started looking at, and we're going to wrap this subsection up tonight, assuming I get through all of the material, uh, looking at manifestations of apostasy. We talked about the increasing attacks on the Word of God, the growing acceptance of pluralism and moral relativism, uh, which has impacted the church through the, the fact that the church is not preaching a clear gospel by and large. That's the quintessential definition of apostasy. And similarly, failing to teach about hell and shunning hell. And then last week, the message I referenced a moment ago, I talked about how the church is failing to call out sin, and in particular, welcoming and embracing uh, the alphabet agenda there. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, a, a huge part of it. So tonight, we want to turn our attention to, attention to the eighth and ninth manifestations. Uh, and there's nothing sacrosanct about the, those numbers. We could talk about this for weeks and come up with 15 different manifestations of apostasy. But just as I thought through this, these are the ones that came to my mind. And the eighth one is this. Uh, a sign of apostasy is the church caving to pressures from the government. The church caving to pressures from the government. This has become one of the defining issues of our day, at least in America. Uh, the church in most other parts of the world other than underground churches and the remnant that is throughout all parts of the world. But the official churches um, in most other parts of the world have long ago departed from the faith. Um, but here in America, you know, we still like to think of ourselves as a Christian nation, and we start, like to think that evangelicalism still has a great influence. And so that's why it was so disheartening uh, to see what has happened over the last three years. In, in, you know, it's happened lightning fast. Um, in their multi-pronged effort to bring down America, the Luciferians are intentionally targeting and co-opting pastors and churches uh, the same way other tyrannical regimes have done throughout history. We're going to talk about that tonight. But this was most clearly seen during the recent pre-planned COVID pandemic. Pre-planned for 22 years. There's no question about that. We've got dozens of, uh, or more than a dozen, smoking gun evidences of that in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. But uh, we saw an, an absolute, you know, clear example of the Luciferians co-opting the church and the church caving to government pressure when they got key evangelical leaders and pastors and radio personalities and authors, etc., to become the mouthpiece to get churches to obey Trump's mandate to stop worshiping God for the first time on Easter Sunday since the early 4th century. You know, we're talking 1,800 years. Uh, you go back to A.D. 313 and the Edict of Milan, which is when uh, the church and Christians began for the first time to be free to move out into the world legally and openly, promoting the gospel and sharing their doctrines with others. February of A.D. 313, uh, Roman Emperor Constantine uh, I from the West and the Emperor Licinius, who controlled the Balkans, they met in Milan, and among other things, they agreed to change the, the Roman Empire's policies toward Christians. And it gave Christianity legal status and a reprieve from persecution. Uh, they didn't officially become the state church, which led to, of course, you know, Catholicism and all that, until 380 A.D., a few years later. 
But starting in 313, the church could openly worship. And every year since then, until Trump's emergency declaration, the church gathered and worshiped Jesus on Easter Sunday, worshiping the resurrection like we just did this last Sunday. That's why I include this as one of the signs of the times. This is a clear you know, departure from the norm. This isn't just a slight trend. This is a major departure from uh, the norm. Now, there were many other government-imposed mandates, of course, and when the church was finally allowed to start meeting again, they had to meet certain conditions about where they could sit, what they could wear, how many parishioners could attend their service. It was really surreal when you, surreal when you look back on it. Um, but, uh, of course, uh, you know, the powers that be, working at the behest of Satan, have always tried to control and lock down Christianity. That's what they want to do. Uh, it's ultimately a spiritual battle between God and Satan. And so we, we could go all the way back to the resurrection, which we just celebrated, and we can see the most unsuccessful lockdown of all time. And uh, they failed then, and uh, so they're going to keep trying. So caving to pressures from the government is one of the signs of a growing apostasy in these great last days. Uh, you know, and we see more and more churches in America placing the government above the Word of God in the lines of authority. Sadly, many churches, including many conservative Bible-believing churches, mishandle the Scripture in an effort to get their parishioners to go along with government mandates. And as we shall see, this is nothing new. Uh, some of it is simply ignorance and bad teaching. Uh, and while that's true, there's also a deeper, darker agenda behind it. So we're going to talk tonight about Romans 13, but before we get to the text... I want to go back and give some historical context on how powerful elites often try to use Scripture to coerce Christians into compliance. That's, you know, you know their agenda 101. It's right out of their playbook. So let's go back to the 1930s and the rise of the Third Reich. This is Joachim Hassenfelder in July of 1933 during Hitler's first summer in power. This young German pastor... Uh, Hassenfelder preached a sermon in the towering Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, Berlin's most important church, and he used Romans 13 to remind worshipers of the importance of obedience to the Nazi regime, those in authority. The church itself was all decked out with Nazi banners, and its pews were packed with Nazi faithful, including soldiers in uniform. And then this is... Uh, Otto de Bilius, earlier that same year, he's a German bishop and was one of the highest Protestant officials in the country. He also preached from Romans 13 to justify the Nazi seizures of power and brutal policies. He's also famous for misquoting Martin Luther and trying to make it seem as though Martin Luther, who highly respected among German Christians, was all in favor of uh, Nazism and anti-Semitism. Uh, three days after his sermon, the German parliament dissolved and Hitler took over. And within a few years, six million Jews were slaughtered. So this is uh, the flag of the German Christians. Uh, the German Christians were an evangelical church group that started in 1932 and ran until 1945. And these were the churches whose 
uh, ideological principles of Nazism set as a goal getting all German Protestants, and we're going to talk about Catholics in a moment, to accept the Nazi principles. Uh, he was a German theologian, Mueller. Uh, he was a Lutheran pastor and the leading member of the German Christian faith movement. In 1933, he was appointed by the Nazi government of the German evangel to be the, the leader of the German evangelical church. It's bishop is what we would say in English. So you could go back. There's all kinds of uh, you know uh, documentary pictures uh, showing what it was life like for those 10 or 12 years uh, in churches in uh, Germany. Uh, here's church leaders campaigning outside a Berlin church for elections, July 23rd, 1933. The banner says, vote for list one, German Christians. And the poster urges Berlin Lutherans to vote for the pro-Nazi uh, German Christian uh, campaign. Um, and then you, we got pictures from inside churches. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, can you just imagine showing up to worship and seeing this, you know, these types of symbols uh, throughout uh, the church? This is Mueller, again, here preaching. In July of 1933, the Nazis signed a concordant with the Vatican, agreeing that the Nazis would not interfere in the Catholic Church. And in return, the Vatican would diplomatically recognize and promote the Nazi regime. Well, of course, the Nazis quickly broke that concordant, and the Vatican established the Ministry for Church Affairs by 1935. And it had a wide range of anti-religious policies aimed at both Protestants and Catholics within Germany. This poster that you see on the screen is from the late 1930s, encouraging Catholic boys and girls to quit their religious youth clubs and instead join the Hitler Youth. Here we've got some of the uh, Catholic officials uh, uh, responding favorably to Hitler. Again, here's Adolf Hitler greeting Catholic Archbishop Bishop Alberto Vassallo de Torregrossa in Munich in 1933. One of the saddest pictures here is church pastors alongside Nazi officials giving the Heil Hitler sign. Here they are again. But, you know, just today, uh, I saw, just to kind of, you know, I don't want this to just be a, a sort of a uh, gratuitous reference to Hitler. You, you get that a lot, right? It's kind of the ultimate insult. But I want to show you how this connects to what we're seeing happening today. This story was on uh, Fox News about how the FBI is once again infiltrating Catholic churches, trying to spy on them and coerce parishioners. Senator Josh, Josh Hawley uh, has been in the news making a big deal about how Attorney General Merrick Garland lied under oath in testimony before the Senate last month because he claimed there were no undercover informants within the Catholic Church. Now it comes out there everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, at least one undercover agent has come forward who was commissioned to spy on a Catholic church in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, but sources indicate there are many, many, many more. So Hawley calls on Garland to provide answers immediately on how many DOJ agents would work with or otherwise employ in Catholic parishes and in other religious organizations more broadly. See, we don't know what we don't know. Um, he said, quote, within which and how many FBI field offices was guidance related to the infiltration of traditionalist Catholic parishes distributed? 
We know they were doing that. So this is not just something new. It's, all, it's long been the plan of the Satan's co-conspirators, the globalists, to infiltrate, co-opt, and coerce churches all across the theological spectrum to help bring down people of faith. Uh, many churches throughout Germany had the Nazi party symbol emblazoned on their church bells. Uh, of course, not everybody complied. I love this picture. I've used it often. Uh, just a mass photo here. Uh, but if you look closely, and I've circled it there, you see one fellow that's just kind of refusing to comply. I don't know anything about the background of the picture. It could be a total coincidence. But to me, it's symbolic of what we need Christians to do today. Now, the Nazis are by no means the only government to appeal to Romans 13 in an effort to get Christians to obey. We could go back to South Africa. Uh, here's uh, uh, P.W. Vata. He said, quote, and by the way, he was the, the prime minister and the president of South Africa and the leader of the apartheid movement. He said, if the principle of permanent residence for the black man in the area of the white is accepted, then it's the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it in this country. I've got some other choice little quotes from him. But on Easter in 1985, when addressing the Zion Christian Church masses of worshipers, he said, quote, The Bible has a message for governments and the governed of the world. Thus we read in Romans 13 that every person should be subject to the governing authorities. So God's a racist, and if we tell you he's a racist, he must be, and you've got to do what we tell you to do, because that's what Romans 13 tells you. Some other quotes from uh, Vata, he said, I never have been nagging doubt of wondering whether perhaps I am wrong. And he said, quote, most blacks are happy, except those who have had other ideas pushed into their ears. I mean, this guy was demonic, and he was using Romans 13 to push the agenda. For centuries, the Dark Ages revolved around the great lie of the divine right of kings. In Latin, it was rex lex, the king is law. Most of Europe at the time, and still do, by the way, believed that if you were from royal dynasty, the bloodlines of the royalty, then God must have put you on that throne. And everyone must obey you always and unconditionally, the divine right of kings. If you've watched the Netflix series, The Crown, you've seen this concept vividly portrayed. They actually think the queen is divine. She speaks for God. It's the divine right of kings. But because of this one deadly myth, the divine right of kings was used to justify the slaughter of countless innocent people and many of our Christian forefathers. I mean, of course, God was sovereign. Yes, Christ was exalted through uh, these faithful martyrs. But many of these brutal kings and tyrannical monarchs eagerly and passionately quoted Romans 13 to justify a pagan and unbiblical ideology. One New Testament scholar writes that the misuse of Romans 13, 1-7 has, quote, caused more unhappiness and misery than any other seven verses in the New Testament by the license they have given to tyrants, used to justify a host of horrendous abuses of individual human rights. See, they use fear to motivate. Satan's always done that. Uh, that's why, you know, God's not, hasn't given us a spirit of fear. The opposite of fear is, is love. And so perfect love casts out fear. Uh, 
The Bible talks about reverence for God and a respect and an awe for God, but not a terrifying fear. But the enemy will use fear. And, and, and they, they use fear, but then they promise also to protect you if you'll simply do as you're told. It's, it's kind of like what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Hegelian dialectic. You know, you, you create a problem, scare people to death, and then you come in and say, hey, we've got this under full control, just do what we tell you, and you'll be safe. Uh, the 18th and early 19th century British statesman William Pitt nailed it when he said, quote, necessity, and then I've inserted here public health, you know, common good, you know, you got to, you know, wear this mask not for you, but for everyone else, right? My mask protects you. So whatever you, whatever you want to insert there, necessity is the plea of every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants, and it is the creed of slaves. That was at a speech in the House of Commons, November 18, 1783. Now, in America, the misuse and abuse of Romans 13 cuts across both political parties and all kinds of uh, religions uh, and includes conservative Bible-believing Christians. In fact, in the last three years, it has primarily been, or at least most predominantly been, Bible-believing conservative Christians that we would otherwise think, oh, they're pretty good people. They handle the Word of God well. And yet they've been the ones that have fallen for this trap. Uh, and conservative Republican Christians need to be honest about this. Uh, they need to, you know, point the finger where it needs to be pointed. Let me give you some examples. Here's Jeff Sessions, who was Trump's attorney general for a little less than two years, one of the longest terms that any one of Trump's people served, actually, a little less than two years. Um, but for Sessions, the Bible justified the horrific attack that even most evangelical Christian leaders, who I would believe are kind of bought and paid for, were still coming out and, and, and decrying the fact that we were ripping children away from their families that were illegal aliens. Now, we can't, you can't condone people coming across the border illegally, but you shouldn't be ripping their children away from them and separating them. It's horrific. It's inhumane. And when pressed on it, guess what he said? This was Thursday, June 21st, 2018. He astonished many conservatives even by defending the Trump administration's policy of the inhumane treatment of the children by citing Romans 13. He said, quote, I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for his purpose. In other words, God's the one ripping these children from their parents' arms. And then Robert Jeffers has expressed similar thoughts. He said, when it comes, this is, let's, let this sink in for a moment. You know, I know there are going to be people that email me and that don't like that I'm quoting these people. You know, I got some negative press from you know, criticizing Billy Graham when he said that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists are all going to be in heaven because they're sincere, nice people. And it just bothers me that people are more concerned that I would call out Billy Graham than they are about what Billy Graham said. <laughs> I mean, that's what you ought to be concerned about. So same thing. Don't get you know, offended because you might be a fan of Jeff Sessions or you know, Robert Jeffers. Listen to what he said and let this sink in. When it comes to how we should deal with evildoers, the Bible in the book of Romans is very clear. God has empowered rulers full power to use whatever means necessary, including war, to stop evil. He said Romans 13 gives the government the authority to do whatever 
whether it's assassination, capital punishment, or evil punishment. I, I wasn't quite sure what that even means, to quell the actions of evildoers like Kim Jong-un. Now, the problem with these God and America ideologies is that they presume a special place for America in the heart of God, as if Romans 13 was written specifically for America to give American leaders carte blanche to do, quote, whatever means necessary, including assassinating the people. But the ironic thing is, uh, you know, Romans 13 gives, exegetically, if you read the Bible the way these people claim to be reading it, gives murderous dictators like Kim Jong-un the same authority as it does President Trump or any American president. See, the true meaning of Romans 13, which we're going to get to, is lost if we think that it applies only to leaders who we favor in our own country and whose, whose decisions we agree with in our own country. Does Romans 13 apply to dictatorial anti-Christian foreign oppressors like I don't know, Nero, <laughs> right? That's who was in power when Paul wrote this. Who gets to decide which governments are doing God's service? Again, we're going to come back and exegete Romans 13 in just a moment. But the most troubling part of Jefferson's statement, to me, is his assertion that Romans 13, quote, gives the government uh, authority to do whatever. Whatever. And he followed that up specifically with assassination, something no civilized government would accept as a legitimate tactic of war. Of course, America's been doing that forever. We've, you know, assassinated multiple foreign leaders in an attempt to put in a new government that would work with us. So this is nothing new. And if you study American history, you know that the American, uh, you know, government has been controlled by the powers that be for a long time. And I don't even have any idea what he means here by evil punishment. Supposedly, Romans 13 gives the United States leaders carte blanche, unfettered authority to use evil punishment. I mean, Romans 13 does not give governments the right to do evil in the pursuit of good. God doesn't ever give people the right to do evil. The ends do not justify the means. As one of Jefferson's fellow Southern Baptists rightly responded, quote, civilized nations must put limits on the extent of warfare, and a prominent pastor encouraging war without moral limits of any kind is troubling, end quote. I say, indeed. So as we're going to see, Romans 13 does not give the government of our nation or any other nation unchecked authority to do whatever it wants. One government's evil is another government's good. I'm sure Hitler thought what he was doing was good or right in his demented mind. And let's not forget, by the way, and I don't mean to be piling on here, but I do get kind of emotional when I think about some of the things that Jeffers has said, uh, mostly on Fox News. But Jeffers is the same pastor, and I talk about this in Spirit of the Antichrist, I think it's volume two, who compared using baby parts from murdered babies in the laboratory to create COVID vaccines to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Robert Jeffress is a former, uh, he's pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, one of the largest Baptist churches in the country, but he's also uh, just a leading evangelical, kind of a spokesman, you know, unofficial. 
for evangel. He's the one one of the talking heads. Anytime they want a conservative, right wing, Bible believing viewpoint, they bring him on. Of course, when he when he says that you know, it's okay that we use baby parts for murdered babies in the laboratory to create vaccines. That's because you know it's okay because you know Jesus gave his life to atone for the sins of the world. He he, he overlooked one major difference. Jesus laid down his life willingly, and those babies didn't have a choice. Now, while we may recoil at the sight of Nazi symbols in German churches and Nazi symbols on church bells, is it any better when government propaganda on the right, the conservatives, the Republicans, who we like to think we're ideologically aligned with, when those churches are enshrined, uh, enshrining their government principles within the walls of America's churches. This is Jefferson's church, First Baptist Dallas, where Trump has spoken more than once. And the choir actually created a song as an ode to Trump that was copyrighted. It's now sung in churches all across the country. You can get a CCLI number for it if you subscribe to CCLI, which churches do, we do, and you can sing it. The Make America Great Again song. Uh, over the past 22 years, the Luciferians pulling the strings of American power have made a concerted effort to co-opt evangelical churches. And sadly, they've made great strains, uh, strides. They know there's no way they're going to be able to bring down America unless they marginalize and neutralize conservative Christians first. So it started with the FEMA and Department of Homeland Security joint effort after 9-11, uh, uh, in the creation of the clergy response team, in which to date over 30,000 pastors have been recruited. The main goal of the clergy response team is uh, to assign uh, pastors to this team that will be bringing comfort, helping to maintain order, and encouraging compliance with DHS orders in the midst of a, a crisis. Any pastor displaying a CRT badge indicating that they've been trained under these guidelines, they call it cleared clergy, uh, will be permitted into the established and designated DHS safety zones. You know, if you've got your credentials and there's a crisis, you know, a disaster of some kind, you'll be allowed to go through the barricades and enter the disaster area uh, without any problem. But they expect you to obey orders and advance their agenda. Uh, at all levels, federal, state, uh, and local. So you see these all over. I just quickly threw together some examples with a quick search. Here's Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, the Cops and Clergy Coalition. Here's Clarksville, Tennessee, where the Clarksville police are thanking what they call the local chapter, the Clergy Rapid Mobilization Team, uh, for helping them advance their agenda. In Brooklyn, New York, you've got the Clergy Council Crisis Team uh, in uh, 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 where is this? Uh, uh, Rochester. You've got the Clergy on Patrol group. This church up in Washington back in 2015, I believe it was, actually invited a bunch of authorities in to come and tell the congregation why they need to obey the government. Notice uh, the verse that's on the screen as they're speaking in this round table before this audience. Romans 13. And, and I don't know if you can see it, but down here in the bottom on the slide it says we've got your back trust us now I don't mean to disparage you know police or sheriff they do have our back and praise God there's some great God-fearing you know 
trustworthy police uh, people out there that we, we need and we're thankful for. But this is just one more piece of propaganda. And again, it all comes down to Romans 13. That's the key. So here's a two-minute clip from KSL-TV in Shreveport, Louisiana. If you think we're making this up or some people say, oh, it's just a conspiracy theory. No, no, it's quite clear. It's quite uh, fact, not in dispute. Uh, but this is a two-minute clip of them talking about the clergy response teams in the context of uh, Katrina. Now, uh, try as I might, I couldn't find a clean clip. And so the the opening of this is cut off, so it jumps right in. So let me tell you what the newscaster is saying at the beginning. And it begins, quote, Will martial law ever become a reality in America? Ever become a reality in America? Some fear any nuclear, biological, or chemical attack on U.S. territory might trigger just that. As KSLA News 12 Jeff Farrell discovered, the clergy would help the government with potentially their biggest problem. Us. Charlton Heston's famous declaration captures a truly American value, the overarching desire to protect our freedoms. But gun confiscation is exactly what happened during the state of emergency following Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. U.S. troops also arrived, something far easier to do even now thanks to last year's elimination of the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act. That forbid U.S. troops from policing on American soil. If martial law were enacted here at home, like depicted in the movie The Siege, easing public fears and quelling dissent would be critical. And that's exactly what the clergy response team, as it's called, helped accomplish in New Orleans. Objective. I'm the thing that we say to anybody is let's walk out and get this thing over with, and then we'll settle the differences once the crisis is over. Such clergy response teams would walk a tightrope between the needs of the government versus the wishes of the public. In a lot of cases, these clergy would already be known in the neighborhoods in which they're helping to defuse that situation. For the clergy, one of the biggest tools that they will have in helping calm the public down or obey the law is the Bible itself, specifically Romans, Romans 13. Because the government's established by the Lord, you know, and, uh, and that's what we believe in the Christian faith, that's what's stated in the scripture. Civil rights advocates believe the amount of public cooperation may depend largely on how long they expect the suspension of their rights might last. Jeff Farrell, KSLA News 12 reporting. According to Tuberville, during Hurricane Katrina, the clergy response team provided 38 chaplains a day around the clock at eight different camps. I mean, where do you even go with that? Um, you know, several illusions there. Remember Operation Mockingbird, the media is controlled and advancing an agenda. Um, so they're wanting to cast this as a, you know, positive thing to help control people. Uh, but that's the key is, is uh, control. Um, this is a less than three minute clip. It's audio only, but it's an interview with a pastor who attended one of the clergy response team meetings. And uh, listen to what uh, he has to say. This was 2006. We call the local FEMA people. I was invited to come because I'd done disaster relief work with another uh, church denominational group years ago, and I want to see what's going on. They were planning for any kind of bioterrorism, they said, so I wanted to find out what it was, it being FEMA. That was wonderful stuff when it started out, but uh, it, it, it immediately turned into um, this is for a natural disaster, a tornado, flood, or any act of bioterrorism, or a nationally declared emergency. And so I led up to that. 
one, and the spokesperson there was from the state FEMA office, uh, who also was a trainer for pastors in their training program for pastors. Uh, he said, um, your job, pastors, is to get your congregations and preach to them Romans 13. And it, that's the part that says you obey the higher powers. And he was saying you have to teach them to obey their government. And so he's telling us that. He's telling us, uh, and the thing that really got us started on this, and when I started contacting people, is when he said the problem with, with uh, local enforcement of, of a federal or state mandate uh, that is quarantine or relocation, these are terms he used or a declaration of martial law based on whatever disaster it, 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 it might be. And he said, if, these, if it goes the distance, the problem is all along the way is the so-called cowboy mentality. And you pastors are going to have to learn to quell that cowboy mentality. And so I asked him what he meant. He said, you know, the individualistic effort that stands up and says, this is my property, you'll cry guns from my cold dead hand kind of thing. And everybody laughed. There were only about six people there. He said, we're not talking about law enforcement. That's a law enforcement issue. We're talking about you pastors going there because you know the people. You all are trusted, and you'll be preaching this ahead of time. You can stand in the neighborhoods and tell people this is for their own good. So this is deadly real. And that was our first meeting. The second meeting pretty much carried, carried it through with uh, our responsibility as pastors is to have training. And this man, who is a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, He's also uh, on a national organization for disaster relief. He's also working with DHS and FEMA. Um, he's on their, their, their payroll. We just found this out last week. He said that your pastor's job, your, your pastor's job is going to be to deal with the individual, not just in counseling, uh, but you're going to be able, you're going to have to control some folks who may not be so cooperative. He said, but that's going to be a law enforcement issue. You'll be backed by that. And he said, besides, pastors aren't trained to handle everything. We get the picture that we, me and, and others who, who are uh, aware of this, that we're going to be standing at some farmer's end of his lane while he's standing with, with, with a double barrel wherever he's got, telling him to lay the arms down, we have to comp they have to confiscate your cows, your chicks. And this is what's so frightening. It started out, he made it sound like it was a, a local thing that we were doing, and we're the pioneers, we're the, we're the first one. Yeah, so they always, you know, love to get people thinking in a bubble, like you're you're special because we're we're going to be one of the you know first ones to roll out this clergy response team and you're going to get a little badge and you're going to be our helpers and they're doing it all over they're doing it all over thirty thousand uh, are a part of that so let's take a look at, and I'll put the verses on the screen but let's take a look at this verse that so many people for centuries have been claiming gives authorities and government carte blanche to do whatever they want and that good Christians are going to dutifully bow down and worship at the altar of government. Um, so a lot of Christians, whether knowingly or not, are appealing to the divine right of kings argument that I talked about from the Middle Ages. Uh, and it's led to some of the most horrific atrocities in history. Uh, and when well-intentioned Christians see Romans 13 as being a universal obey the government at all cost mandate, they're really aligning themselves with the likes of George Hegel, the grandfather of communism. Remember, we've talked about the Hegelian dialectic who argued that government is divinely sanctioned to do anything it pleases, and that God requires people to submit regardless of the inalienable standards of equity and justice. And so as I've just discussed, this argument's been used by everyone going back to Jesus' day all the way through Hitler, and sadly by many Christians today. What's ironic about it, at least for Americans, is that the people who hold this position probably wouldn't even be here if our forefathers and ancestors had held to that understanding of Romans 13. 
they would be have been slaughtered uh, and still be living under the thumb of the king. So Romans 13 begins, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Two things to point out. The word soul there just means life. It doesn't mean the immaterial part. It's just let every person would be a loose translation. Be subject to the governing authorities. The first thing to notice is it doesn't say anything about obedience. The word subject there is the word hupotasso. It's used 40 times in the New Testament. A very clear word that simply means uh, submit. So when it says that every soul be subject to it, it's that every soul submit to the governing authorities. Now, what do we know about this word hupotasso? Well, it's, as I said, pretty prevalent. It's used, for example, in Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18, where wives are told to submit to their husbands. In fact, in 5.21 of Ephesians, it says all believers are to submit to one another. So does that mean that we must all obey other believers? See, the argument that people make is, well, as long as the government's not mandating sin, then you have to do what they tell you. You have to submit. They're in charge. Now, if we apply that same meaning of the word submit to the marriage relationship, it falls apart pretty quickly, right? And even more so if we apply it to believer with believer. I mean, how many of you here are a believer? Okay, I am too. You must submit. Greg, go get me a Starbucks right now. <laughs> is it a sin for Gary to go get a Starbucks? Well, that's probably not the best analogy. Some people think it is, but go get me a drink. Go get me a cup of water. Okay, that's generic enough, okay? Is it a sin for him to get me a drink of water? Of course not. Is it a sin for me to ask him? No, not necessarily. Nothing inherently immoral about that. If, that, if you're going to apply that same principle and definition of the word hupotasso, it creates all sorts of problems, right? It's not an absolute statement. That's the point. Uh, context matters, as with all Scripture. It, this is a qualified statement. If a husband is evil and himself engaged in illegal, immoral behavior, even if he's not mandating that his wife uh, participate and, and conspire with him in this evil, sinful, illegal activity, is she obligated to submit to him and do whatever he says? Absolutely not. In fact, she should turn him in. <laughs> Similarly, we're not obligated to submit to the government in an absolute sense. This passage itself, as we're going to see, provides qualifiers that govern when and whether we should submit. And when a government usurps God's authority, goes rogue, and leads its people down a path of destruction, they're no longer God's agents at that point. That's the point. Are we to believe that every governmental system since time began is God-ordained and that governmental authorities can do whatever they want and Christians have to just sit back and take it? I mean, what about the God of this age, the prince of this world, Satan himself? Aren't some government rulers explicitly working under his regime? Absolutely. I document that unequivocally in the two-volume series, Spirit of the Antichrist. Are we to believe that Hitler... Stalin, Mao, and other mass murderers were established and ordained by God, and that men like Bonhoeffer who resisted them were sinners for doing so? Is that what we think this passage is teaching? Of course not. I mean, it can't possibly be teaching that. Even if, even if you didn't have good Bible study method skills and didn't read the whole context, if you just had that verse, instincts ought to tell you that's not what's going on here. History includes many examples of Christians who have confronted governmental tyranny, and appropriately so. 
Even Jesus himself taught his disciples that sometimes they needed to employ self-defense. Self-defense in the face of evil is necessary. Remember this in Luke 22? He said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. But watch, and he who has no sword, go sell a garment and buy one. You might need a sword to withstand evil people. You know, people are quick to point out Jesus' exhortation to love thy neighbor, but you don't often hear the rest of what Jesus taught. You know, love thy neighbor and pack thy heat. That's what Jesus taught, right? <laughs> Fleeing from the persecution of a hostile government, as we see here in Matthew 10:23, has been widespread since time began. It's not uncommon at all. We see all kinds of examples of this throughout human history. Back to Romans 13. So is the intention here for this to be an absolute? All governments at all times must clearly be submitted to by their subjects. If it is ever okay to resist the government, and clearly it is, then the question then becomes, okay, what's the regulating principle? Under what circumstances can we not submit uh, to the government? Clearly, this is not an absolute statement. Uh, not all, you know, this gets into what we talked about some months ago in my series on what is Calvinism, where Calvinists literally think that God made Adam and Eve sin. God forced them to take the bite of the proverbial apple, that God created evil, God created sin, right? That's really where, what you're left with if you think this is an absolute, that all authorities that are, exist are God-ordained. God wants them. God put them there, right? If the divine right of King's view of Romans 13 were correct, that would mean that every genocidal action taken by a tyrant is tantamount to an ordinance of God, which, of course, clashes brutally with the principle that God does no wrong. Paul goes on, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. See, the fact is, and, and Paul has talked about this by the time he had written Romans, there is a cosmic struggle between good and evil between God and Satan. And governments are often pawns in this game, as we read about in Psalm 2. How do we respond when we find ourselves living in a land of a Luciferian government leadership rather than godly leadership? Is there ever a time to resist the government? That's really what we're asking. Well, we have plenty of historical examples from Scripture. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have heard and seen. Remember, they severely threatened him and said they can never speak, in the speak about the name of Jesus again. So the Jewish leaders were speaking with the backing of Rome, just as the Jewish leaders had sought and received the go-ahead from Rome to crucify Christ. Similarly, in the early days of the church, the Jewish rulers, elders, and scribes were working side by side with the Roman government. And, you know, how did uh, Peter and, and John respond? They didn't seem impressed at all by the government. They said, we're going to obey God rather than men, right? They see this again and again. They'd been strictly commanded, this is in, uh, you know, chapter 5, not to teach about Jesus, um, and we're, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Uh, and yet many people do that today. You know, many public school teachers won't talk about Jesus in the classroom because they know they'll get fired. Um, of course, 
this was before Paul, you know, was saved himself and before he had written under the inspiration of the Spirit the book of Romans. So maybe these early church leaders didn't know that they were obligated to do whatever the government told them. I don't know. I don't think so. Let's go back a few hundred years before the church and see how God's people interacted with government tyranny back then. You remember Nebuchadnezzar created an, a, a picture? Here's a, a, a replication of an engraving with an inscription of Nebuchadnezzar on it. And they said, you've got to uh, worship me. And if you don't, you're going to be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to government tyranny? Uh, no thanks, Nebi. We're not going to do it. We don't serve your gods. And we're not going to worship the gold image which you have set up. Back to Romans 13. Here's where we begin to see some context. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Well, the first question that any good student of Scripture ought to ask is, well, what if rulers are in fact a terror to those who are good? Uh, what then? I mean, what if the government is in fact persecuting Christians? Then this doesn't apply. It doesn't make sense. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture and thinking theologically instead of taking a single passage, ripping it out of context, we see there are implied limits to what Paul has been teaching. It's utterly absurd to view Romans 13 as providing a universal guarantee or promise that if we behave ourselves and do what is good, governments are going to praise us and reward us. Paul says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Well, that, the, the, the thought that somehow if we just, you know, do what we're told, we're going to be blessed by the government contradicts a tremendous amount of human experience over the millennia where millions of people who are minding their own business, doing no harm to anyone, were slaughtered and tormented by their own governments. And by the way, Exhibit A was the Christians of the first century, including Paul, who were martyred. Verse 4, he says, For he, the government, is God's minister to you for good. Again, is this an absolute? Does this mean that every government that has ever existed has been righteous and has been used of God to punish evil and bless good? If you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. I mean, our government today rewards those who practice evil. And so this, too, would contradict millennia of human experience wherein governments have not only winked and nodded at evil behavior of the Luciferian elites, but they've actually been complicit in it and helped accomplish the immoral goals. You know, when the government and the government's uh, patsies and pawns, uh, you know, hire LGBT people to promote it like Fox News did and make it seem normative, when they pass laws that, you know, allow a man and a woman to get married, or they, they tell you that uh, unborn children have no constitutional rights and each state can decide when and how to kill them. Uh, you know, that's, that's a government gone rogue. That's not a government that fits the model of God's divine design that Paul is talking about here. Peter makes a similar statement about the purpose of government in his first epistle when he says, Therefore submit, same word, hupotasso, yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, or as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who are good, doing good. Well, again, I ask, what if the government is punishing those who are doing good and praising evildoers? Then what? In that case, they're not worthy of our submission. 
And that should be transparently obvious. It really should go without saying. Peter certainly believed uh, there was a proper place uh, for disobeying the government, as we saw from Acts 4 and 5. And then verse 5 in our text, therefore, you must be subject. Well, what does therefore point to? You know, good rule of hermeneutics, when you see therefore, you should always ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And the therefore points back to the governments being God's ministers or envoys. Some people would have us believe that this verse teaches that governments are essentially God's wooden spoon, and, and we must be subject to them no matter what, which would be like saying that children must be tolerant of abusive parents no matter what, and wives must be tolerant of abusive husbands no matter what. I mean, that kind of interpretation is particularly absurd when you consider the fact that some rulers, such as the former Soviet Union, modern-day Russia, communist China, North Korea, we could go on, have structured their entire governments around the principle that there is no God. God doesn't exist. And yet we're to believe that we have to be subject to them because they are God's instruments to do us good. So in this last verse here, verse 5, not the last one, but this key verse, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. There's really two reasons that Paul is laying out here for Christians to be submissive to the government. On the one hand, if, God, if governments are doing what God wants them to do and are acting legitimately as God's tool, then yeah, if, you're, if you mess up, you know, you're going to pay the price. It's, it's, it's God's divine uh, you know, institution, like marriage and family and church, right? Uh, but the second reason is, is often overlooked here, and that is conscience. Conscience refers to the believer's knowledge of God's will and purposes. That's what the word means. We understand a biblical worldview. We understand what God is doing in the bigger picture. In other words, let conscience be your guide. And when your conscience tells you that this is an evil government doing evil things, advancing an evil agenda, you, you're no longer obligated to do whatever they tell you to do. If the government is acting justly according to God's will and purposes, then you should submit. Uh, and then the passage, these seven verses, closes with this uh, verse, this sentence, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due is implied. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. So in other words, the key here is rendering taxes, customs, fear, and honor to whom it is due. And in some instances, it is not due. We don't have an obligation to bow down and worship King Jong-un or, you know, the leader of, uh, you know, uh, China or, uh, what's his name, Chi? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, North Korea or Iran, you know, Ahmadinejad or whoever it is now. I think a plain, normal, natural reading of Romans 13, according to a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, makes it clear that Paul is not providing here a universal obey the government at all costs, or as some people like to say, as if it makes any difference, obey the government unless they're forcing you to sin, right? If they force you to sin, you know, then you, 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 know, you don't have to obey them. But otherwise, you've got to do everything they say. Uh, and that's the reason people say, well, you know, they're not forcing, like China did, women to have abortions. No, no, they're just taking your tax money 
unconstitutional income tax money, by the way, and using it to kill babies. So you want to submit to that kind of government? I mean, that's, that's the question. Uh, the historical context, as well as a comparison of Scripture with Scripture, makes it clear that we are to obey governments only when they are, in fact, functioning as God's ordained agents or furthering a moral absolute and a moral principle and something good, right? Same thing's true with parents, you know. Children are to obey their parents and uh, submit. Uh, wives are to submit to their husbands. Believers are to submit uh, to one another. But that doesn't mean we have to submit to evildoers. And parents who are abusive, they don't qualify and don't have the right to demand that type of submission. So that's number eight. And then number nine is real quick because it relates to that. And, and the final example of apostasy, and then I'll take questions, is a stunning lack of discernment in this great last days. I mean, it is palpable. Uh, you know, I run into it all the time. Um, you know, Jesus reminds us, take heed that no one deceives you, speaking here of the future tribulation generation. Many are going to come in my name and deceive many. Um, uh, you know, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. He says, false Christs and false prophets will rise. Um, that's why John, who tells us that many antichrists have already come in verse 3 of chapter 4, begins the chapter by saying, brethren, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Test the spirits. Uh, I talk about this in chapter 11 of Spirit of the Antichrist, volume 1. And sadly, the church, because of a, just a multifaceted intentional attack that involves so many fronts, you mean compulsory government schooling, the state-run media, the entertainment industry, the churches that have been co-opted and are teaching false doctrine. Uh, most believers are ill-equipped to be able to recognize false prophets and false teaching that have gone out into this world. So I'll close with this quote from Solzhenitsyn, member of the, the Russian dissident, political prisoner, one of the most outspoken critics of communism. He said, quote, we should have resisted the KGB, the KGB at the front door. If the KGB thought that they might not go home that night, the Russian people might have had a different fate. And I would add, we need to resist the government at the church's front door as well. Amen? amen. I got a few amens. Okay, that makes me feel a little better. All right, we got uh, 15 minutes left for questions, comments, thoughts. Uh, fire away. Yes, sir. Uh, in this discussion, how do you bring in the America's founding documents into this discussion? Constitution, Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, so great question. Uh, and the question is, how do we, how does all this relate to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and America's founding documents. Um, from a secular perspective, I, I don't think there can be any argument that the Constitution, as it was drafted, is the best government system ever made on earth, right? Um, but to somehow say that the America was founded on Christian principles as a Christian nation, I disagree, and I document this in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. Uh, you know, you could go back to a whole slew of documents from key founding fathers like Adams, Jefferson, Hamilton, 
in which they're disparaging Christians, disparaging God. They don't have anything to do with Jesus. Um, so we know what their personal worldview was. We also know their background as Freemasons. They came over in 1776, started the Illuminati, uh, uh, the Bavarian Illuminati with Weishaupt. Um, so I, as I talk about in the book, you know, God's fingerprints all over all over the founding of America, but so are Satan's. And you go back to the you know the Pilgrims and the Puritans and the you know the 17th century group that came over at Plymouth Rock. You know, they were God-fearing, true believers that really wanted religious freedom. But 100 years later, by the time Europe had essentially you know gotten starry-eyed, and it wasn't just Europe; it was the the Luciferian bloodlines that saw America as a beachhead for the New World Order. That's why they called it the New World. And so they sent their delegates over to take control. And then what they vastly underestimated, and I know I'm repeating myself from stuff we've talked about before, but it's on point to the question, uh, they vastly underestimated the power of the Spirit of God, the power of God's Word, as Christians were propagating and having children and spreading. And so it got out of control. And so America was the greatest nation on earth for 150 years or so. But by the time of the turn of the 20th century, that's when the Luciferians got together and said, we've, we've lost it. We've got to get rid of America. So they set in place, and this is well documented, a deliberate intentional plan to destroy America through education, through uh, the military, through uh, the economy, through medicine, Big Pharma, Big Agra, all of those things, the Federal Reserve, all of that, they intentionally got together and put that out. And now here we are, 120 years later, and they're on the verge of succeeding. So uh, I think you can, you can be objective and nuanced, and you can give credit where credit's due in terms of the freedoms of this country. But, you know, the Bill of Rights has been completely shredded. I mean, we don't have Second Amendment. We don't have Fourth Amendment. We don't have free speech. What's that, uh, First Amendment? Yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's not the document that's the problem. It's, you know, it's the people that are supposedly enforcing it. So, good question. Anybody else? Yes? So, I was talking to a local pastor, and I was talking about the position that Christians take in. come to me and tell me I couldn't preach the gospel, I've not changed my, my message a bit, you know, it, it really is the question, where, where is that line uh, that, is, that is drawn on um, yeah. where, you resist, where you don't resist, um, and, and nuancing your answer, hopefully, into the doing evil versus good? Yeah, so I, that's a great question. So the question was, some churches back during the government mandates said, hey, they're not telling me I can't preach the gospel, so I'm going to comply with the masks, the social distancing, the limited attendance, all of that stuff. Um, I vehemently and strongly disagree with that approach. So several things to consider. First of all, what's the agenda behind those things? When you understand the agenda, that's the, the issue, because it is never the loving thing to do to perpetuate a lie. It is never the loving thing to do to perpetuate a lie. And Christians are called to be loving. And I can't tell you during that three years how many discussions I had with pastors who said, I just think the love of Christ compels us to just go along and, and, and do it. You know, It's never the loving thing to do to perpetuate a lie. Then there's also the, the health aspects of it. You know, There have been all kinds of peer-reviewed journals, dozens of them. I talk about this in the book. 
that for over a century demonstrated not only do masks have zero effect on a severe acute respiratory virus, but they're counterproductive and they can be harmful. You know, you're breathing in all that, you know. So, so again, is it loving to encourage your church body to do things that are going to harm them physically? Uh, so, you know, I think obviously everyone, every pastor had to make their own decision. I think a lot of them just did it not really thinking through it. And I, I don't want to be too harsh on them. I, I get it. it was a tough time. We were all kind of feeling our way through, not trying, not sure what was going on really. Uh, but it's the ones that really adamantly and strongly came out and cited Romans 13 and said, no, you don't have a choice. You've got to do this. The government knows what's best. Fauci is God. Do whatever he tells you. That's, that's where I would draw the line. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, again, you know, going back to the principle of brotherly love, uh, the way Plum Creek dealt with it is we didn't have any requirements, but given the craziness and turmoil of the day, we had people that, a very few, but some that came in and they might wear masks or they might didn't come because they wanted to social distance and we didn't judge them, we didn't criticize them, we didn't call them out, we, that's between them and the Lord, we respect individual freedoms and individual rights. But, uh, you know, we didn't shut down and we didn't limit our attendance. And the Tri-County Health people twice called me because my phone number is on the church website as the contact number. We don't have an office here. Twice said they'd gotten reports of people driving by and seeing our parking lot, you know, filled with cars on Sundays and wanted to know if we were complying. And I just said, I said, you know, listen, we're, you know, we're doing it. And uh, now I had an advantage because we had had inside intel from someone who talked to the uh, current sheriff at that time, he's no longer the sheriff now, but he assured us he wasn't going to come prosecute and arrest people for disobeying these uh, unconstitutional medical mandates. Um, so that, so I'm not setting myself up as some kind of a hero. It was easier to do it in that context. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be my answer to people like that. It's Again, it goes into what does the government stand for? What is their motive? What's their ulterior goal? And in that case, they should be suspect. Now, that doesn't mean we are, you know, totally, uh, uh, what's the word, anti, uh, antinomian, come to me, uh, against the law. It doesn't mean we run through red lights and don't stop at stop signs and rob banks and all that. You know, the, the government has laws. And again, if the laws are legitimate and for a good purpose, we should obey them and God's going to honor that. You're not going to get plowed into at an intersection if you stop at the red light, right? But if, if it's a spurious or, in some cases, a dangerous rule, uh, absolutely, we're not under any obligation to submit to that. One follow-up. Yeah. So, different person. Um, you mentioned the revolution. He was like, no, we, we should not have done We should of course not have yeah. because as believers, we, we are called to suffer, and you know what? God ordained it, and so... So this, oh, I would love to have been a fly on the wall or a bull in front of him. Um, yeah. He also is like, you know, you embrace this Constitution and this American 
ideal. Yeah. It, it just kind of infected my thinking. No, I'm glad you asked that. And, and by the way, loving Jesus is no insulation against stupidity. There are a lot of stupid people that love Jesus, okay? So, uh, but here's the, here's the thing. The question is, another pastor who's talked to was, you know, he, um, Greg made the appeal to the Revolutionary War, and this pastor said, well, we shouldn't have done that. We should have just bowed down and worshiped and, we, and, and suffered because God hasn't promised we won't suffer, and if we suffer, we suffer, and we got to obey the king. So I don't even know where to begin with that, but, but here's, the, here's the issue. There's a whole group of people out there that have that type of black and white legalistic absolute sense of not just Romans 13, but a lot of other things. These are the same people, by the way, that would say, if, if, uh, if there's a, a rapist on the loose in your neighborhood and your wife and daughters are hiding in the closet and he shows up at the door and says, where are your wife and daughters? If you don't say they're right here in the closet, let me show you, you're sinning morally against God because you lied. You lie uh, when you are in the military and you, and you have secret spies to try to spy out the enemy. You're lying on the football team when you do a fake hut count. You're lying when you tell your wife you're not having a surprise birthday party. It's that kind of black and white mentality. And they don't understand the, the spirit of, of right and wrong, you know. And so, you know, yes, God has not promised we won't suffer, but uh, especially if we're stupid enough to fall in line under a tyrant who's wanting to kill us, you know. So, yeah, that's just not, that again, that's just very common understanding of Romans 13 and they have to go there they they if they're going to be consistent I mean I at least admire the consistency of those who then take the next step because you know it was kind of a, I'm assuming kind of a gotcha question but because I've used the same question where I'm going well what about the revolutionary war we wouldn't even be here and most people will say hmm well that was different and okay and they come up with weasel weaseling out of it but at least this person said nope yep I would have just bowed down and Lay down my arms, you know. So, again, that's, that's where you end up with absurd conclusions about letting your wife be raped if you hold on to these kinds of black and white, uh, unbiblical viewpoints. So, great questions. Who else? We got time. Yes. Going back to, um, in the beginning, you mentioned that Catholic parishes are being infiltrated yeah. by DOJ. Um, can you expand on that? I don't really understand the Catholic Church and what's wrong with well, and it's not just Catholic churches. Let me find the headline here if I can. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, this was just today, by the way. I mean, it's an ongoing story, but this headline is from today. Um, but yeah, the uh, you know the FBI is has agents. Uh, so does the CIA on the payroll that uh, go undercover, pretending to be part of groups. Very common with. Uh, militia groups and the whole January 6th thing. There were more people on the payroll of the FBI and the CIA than there were actual, you know, Trump people that were there, you know, to sightsee. So, I mean, literally, that's come out just recently that, you know, there were all these people they called to testify. The, you know, prosecution says, nope, they're, they're immune. We can't call them to testify because they were on the payroll of the FBI. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, very, very common. And so this is just specifically related to the Catholic Church about uh, them, you know, bringing a secret undercover agents in to spy out Catholic groups and try to influence them. It's, it's a, a, or a, a method that was very big in the 60s called COINTELPRO, stand, COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program of the FBI, shortened to COINTELPRO, 
all of the major civil rights movements uh, that you've seen throughout our history, none of the official story on that is correct. Those were all provocateured and infiltrated and, and ginned up by FBI agents to create civil unrest, every one of them. Doesn't mean that the principles behind them weren't you know, valid and that there weren't real issues at stake, but those were not organic you know, things that just happened. These were co-IntelPro uh, agents. Uh, that the, uh, you know, Timothy McVeigh, he was a FBI informant uh, that they, you know, talked into being their patsy, and that's a whole other story. Uh, the first World Trade Center bombing, uh, same thing. The guy there was a complete FBI informant, and the day of, this was in 93, uh, he was told all along he was going to put a fake bomb in there, and they were just trying to set up all of his terrorist you know, buddies and arrest them. Uh, the day of, it's a real bomb, and he goes, wait a minute, this is a real bomb. What are you guys doing? They go, shut up and just put it in there and blow up the World Trade Center. That's just what they do. So this is very common technique to use undercover agents, and this is what they're talking about with this Catholic thing. Yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it, that's a great point. A lot of it is uh, uh, based on uh, principles and things that are, that the government is against, such as the right of the unborn. And so they'll infiltrate these groups and try to either influence them negatively or spy them out and set them up. We saw a lot of that in January 6th, just setting them up. I mean, clearly there were some people that made mistakes, but this was far from an insurrection trying to overthrow the government. When you've got FBI agents saying, come here, let me open the door for you. Come on in. Over here, come into Nancy Pelosi's office. Sit behind her desk. It'll be cool. I'll take your picture. And then they get arrested and thrown in Guantanamo and tortured, you know. Uh, but it was all, it was all pro provocateur. Uh, yes. Right. But it's not the mark of the beast, at least not yet. Right. Um, and being in the church, we're going to be raptured prior to that. What do you think the dangers are of us being involved with that? Great question. I got that question by email that I answered. Uh, I, I, I'm so proud of myself. I answered 35 emails on Sunday afternoon. And I just was so far behind, I just said, I can't start another week. Because if the week get start gets started, I just don't have time. So... One of them was on that very question. Um, so to me, so the question is, since CBDCs uh, are not going to be the, uh, or let's, let's call it digital IDs, because that's the real problem. The CBDC is just a red herring for the, the digital ID and the tracking. It's not about financial transactionalism. It's about control. So they're going to require everyone to have a digital ID to be able to, transact but you know kind of like well it, it's it's the Hegelian dialectic it's not about controlling the money supply it's about controlling you that that's what it's about so the question is given that that technology is not going to be employed as the mark of the beast until after the rapture I, I'm putting words in your mouth but essentially you're saying what's the harm or what's the downside of Christians participating in it the downside is it's once you've signed on for the digital ID you've lost absolutely all freedom forever once you've signed up, they can track absolutely everything you do. 
So I don't think it's a moral issue per se. I don't think it's anything related to the mark of the beast or some satanic symbol. I just think it's a wisdom issue that, you know, once you sign on to that digital ID, it's game over. So my plan is for my family and I to, that's a line in the sand, just like the vaccine was a line in the sand. We would have rather shot, been shot, killed, than take the vaccine. I'll be shot and killed and hunted down before I'll sign up for the digital ID. Because at least if I'm not on the radar, I can go off the grid, I can work on the black market and, and barter with people and try to survive, kill a deer, and you know, I can, uh, so, but I don't think it's gonna come to that, if, honestly, I mean, I'm prepared to do that if we have to, but I don't really think it's ever even gonna come to that. I think they're gonna get the low-hanging fruit, uh, just like 70% of people on Earth, of 8 billion people, took the vaccine, or at least one phase of it. Uh, I think they'll get far more than that to do the digital ID. They've already got it in most countries. China already has it. Uh, India already has it. So they're way ahead already. Uh, and I think in America, they'll use the, the carrot of, hey, if you're an early adopter, we're going to put 500 tokens on your card and it's free money. And you know, But if you wait, you don't get that. People are going to line up right and left. And then they've got you. Then, then they can track everything they do. Then it's just a matter of piling on. Oh, since we have this digital ID, why don't we start tracking people's carbon credit score and social credit score and where they're traveling and you know what they're buying, what they're eating, what they're watching. We start tracking it all because it's now you've got the infrastructure there to track everything. So to me, it's just a, a wisdom thing, not a moral thing per se. Yeah. yeah. I would almost disagree with that, that very last comment about okay. being a moral thing. Okay. Because I actually do think CBDCs or even the Federal Reserve notes are immoral. Basically, it's money created from thin air on demand. That's called counterfeiting. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Whereas gold and silver, for instance, is it requires a unit of work to take it out of the ground, smelt it into a coin Good point. or whatever it is. That's not immoral. That's God's money. Yeah, it was no here doubt. Before us, it'll be here after us. It's God's money. No, believe me, I I would would be easily convinced to to go there, but I'm just trying to say uh, you know that it's a moral issue. So that's a great point. Um, I just to me, you know, I can't cite chapter and verse. Thus saith the Lord. Uh, so to me, it's it's more about the means to the end. It's what's the agenda behind it. You know. Um, so, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It it, it it's it could easily be made out to be a moral thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. And we won't even be able to get over there. We're not going to get over there with that many digital anyway. Yeah. What do you mean? What miracle is immobilized? Yeah, so first of all, yeah, I was just reading something about that. Yeah, so the comment is if, if someone's left behind at the rapture, which, by the way, nobody has to be. It's not a question. It's not, you know, boy, I hope I'm not left behind, or I, I can't wait to see if I'm one of the lucky ones with the ticket to heaven. You know, you can know today whether you no Christ. It's, it's trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So it's never a question. But there will be people left behind. And for those left behind, you're right. It's if the government, if, if the Lord tarries is coming and the United States is still functioning as a nation uh, after the rapture, then it won't be long before everything just crumbles. 
and the rapture itself will play a key role in that. You know, for centuries, dispensational Bible scholars, and yes, dispensationalism has been around for 2,000 years. You know, there's a tired, old, easily debunked argument that go you know, out there that says dispensationalism was started by a demon-possessed lady in the 1800s who worked with John Darby. That's, it's laughable, and it's embarrassing that anybody still even makes that argument. Uh, in my Ph.D. studies, we had to trace, you know, every century from the apostolic age and show that there were people, a remnant, that held to a two-phase return of Christ, once for the church and once for the second coming to establish the kingdom. It's been around. It's, it's biblical, first of all, and the term dispensation is a biblical term. Um, but uh, anyway, you know, uh, I don't even remember where I was going with that. What were we just talking about? Yeah, the, oh, yeah, I was just going to say that for centuries, dispensations have taught that uh, what's going to be down, the downfall of America is the rapture, that because there's so many Christians here that America will be impacted far worse than any other nation on earth because all the sudden disappearance of Christians. I mean, that still may hold some truth to it, but you know, we're really a post-Christian nation here, here now, so I'm not sure if we can make that same claim. But the bottom line is there are any number of ways that this could go down. We, we're all speculating. We don't know if America will still be here by the time the rapture happens. We could see America collapse this, this year. And the way things are happening, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, and the rapture might not happen for 10 years. I, I don't know. It's all in the Lord's hands. But uh, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons. Um, anybody have burning question? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you for getting us... On track before we close. I just don't know how to answer the people that refer to the second sentence in the first verse that all authority is appointed by God, and so if it is, then we have to follow. Yeah, no. Again, we just went through why how this cannot possibly be an absolute. It's got contextual qualifiers to the extent that the government is blessing good, punishing evil, serving God correctly. Right, because they're taking it out of context. Um, I mean, from a sovereignty perspective, you know, this gets into the, to the whole free will sovereignty debate, right? What we teach is that, what I believe the Bible teaches is that God is sovereign, but that doesn't make God the author of evil. So yes, you know, the fact that there are evil people in positions of governmental leadership doesn't in any way contravene God's sovereignty. It's not like God's wringing his hands saying, oh, I didn't ordain that one, and I don't know what to do about him. He's a real wild card. I wonder what he's going to do next. God is still sovereign, but we live in the realm of linear time, and from a human perspective, we have to, you know, we have to apply God's principles in each given situation. And so I think, and this goes back to what Greg's friend was saying, if if we make this absolute, you know, then it creates all sorts of tension down the road. Did I lose my audio? Yeah. Test one, two. Is it on now? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, that's why. I came unplugged. Somebody unplugged me. The good thing is the live streamers don't need this amplification. So anyway, um, you get in a real sticky wicket when you're trying to, like the Calvinists who say God created sin, God made Adam and Eve create the Adam and Eve, the apple. I would apply that same principle here. I would say, no, God isn't ordaining King, Kim Jong-un, or frankly, our leaders either, uh, in my view. Um, so therefore, uh, you know, God is over all of these authorities, but he hasn't you know, 
appointed them with a carte blanche freedom to speak on his behalf. That's the divine right of kings. So they don't get, they're not God. So they don't get to speak unequivocally for God. The fact that God put them in doesn't mean that they're always going to do what's right. And it's what they're doing that regulates whether we must submit to them or not. Not that God put them in there. That goes back to that therefore. They like to say, because God ordained every leader, therefore we must obey every leader. And they're missing a whole bunch of context in the middle there. Yeah. I was just along those same lines. I was just going to say that our, our government was basically put into place to protect life, liberty, and property. When they become the instrument by which life, liberty, or property is destroyed, then there's a problem. Exactly. Great point. Yeah. The government was put in place, at least in our Constitution, to protect life, liberty, and property, and all three of those are under attack. Right. Completely under attack. So. Well, this, I hope, has been uh, at least uh, caused you to think and maybe you know, dive into it on your own. We will uh, move on next week. I'm not 100% sure which category I'm going to go with next, but I'm leaning towards setting the stage demonically. I figure while I've already made a bunch of enemies, I might as well just <laughs> jump off the edge and get into some of the real edgy stuff. But I don't know. I'm going to pray about it and, and see what comes uh, easily over the next week. But we'll meet again next Tuesday, same time, same place. And... Uh, and uh, we will see you then. Thank you, guys. God bless.